day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining. I am back in studio this week after a week off, a needed week off to rest and recharge. Of course, also to take in all of the things that have been happening in our city and in our country as the pot boils over, over the issues of police brutality, of systemic racism, of inequality. I'm really glad to be back in the seat here in the studio at this moment because I feel like what we do here each day on Detroit Today is kind of an important component to the thinking that we need to be doing as a community, uh, as a city, as a nation about all of these issues. And it is an important way for us to get our minds around the idea of change and reform, not the kinds of pablum that we talk all the time about in terms of change and reform, but the real changes and real reforms that I feel like we are perhaps closer to really implementing than we have been in many, many years. So I am glad to be back, happy to be hosting the conversation again, and eager to hear from you about what you think about all of this, what you think the opportunity is for change and reform and how we make the most of what's happening in our streets right now. Up first today, Minneapolis City Council has voted to defund and dismantle that city's police department. They will rethink the entire concept of police over the next many months. That vote comes in the wake of the murder of George Floyd at the hands of one of the city's officers. Former Detroit police chief and retired Deputy Mayor Ike McKinnon is really familiar with Minneapolis. He has been working with the Minneapolis Police Department for years as a consultant. He's also experienced, of course, firsthand the overt racism and abuse that black men face in this country, even from fellow officers here in Detroit. McKinnon served as a member of the police force during the 1967 rebellion in Detroit, and he joins me now to talk about how those experiences shape his reaction to the things that we are seeing today. Ike McKinnon, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen, and good morning to you. Yes, good morning to you as well. Uh, Let's start with your reaction to what they have announced in Minneapolis, this idea of really reconstructing the police department. You are a consultant for, you were, have been a consultant for the Minneapolis Police Department. Uh, Tell us what you were there to help them with and what you think of what they're doing. Well, Stephen, let me say, it's not for the police department. I worked with a group called One to One who worked with the police department. I see. And, And their idea was to take one police officer and have him or her mentor one young person primarily from the minority community for at least a year and to see if that changed the uh, perception of the reality of what was happening in law enforcement and so after being there uh for a couple times for a few times the last couple years uh, the realization is that uh, certainly they had and have some very serious problems because as we can see by some of the attitudes of some of the officers, uh, there is a lack of, in my opinion, understanding and realization of, the, of humanizing some of those young people. And when, when that happens, as we have seen in other departments, and certainly here 
over, over the years is that uh, there's a lack of humanization of, of people. And that leads to what we're seeing right now, a lack of trust, a lack of confidence within, uh, within the agency. And I'm not surprised that they're saying, you know, let's, let's do something else. And I think this is what's coming about now. Yeah. So, uh, I, I'm also curious about your reaction as a former police officer, as a former police chief, to the idea of defunding or dismantling the police department. I, I, I think those are very extreme terms. They don't, they don't necessarily, I think, accurately, hyper-accurately at least, describe what we're likely to see. I think it is a little more nuanced than that. But but what's your reaction to the idea that, that the police as currently configured in a city like Minneapolis or perhaps in a city like Detroit should go away and that we should come up with another way to maintain public safety? Well, uh, the people, some of the people in the city are feeling the police are not serving them. So if the police are not serving us or the people within a respective community, they say, let's look at something else. And if that something else is going to be radical, it's what they're saying in Minneapolis, then let's try that. I, to me, I mean, you can't totally do away with, with police. I think they have to look at this in its entirety. But I think what's happening as a result of George Floyd's death and the other people that have lost their lives around the country, uh, you have a ground swelling of people that saying, the police are not there to serve and protect me, and the chances are I'll get killed by the police or beat by the police rather than someone else. So their thoughts are, if they're not serving me, if, if, if there's a possibility that they're going to do certain things to me, let's look at something else. Uh, it's, it's radical, and it, it could lead to some very serious problems, but I think that uh, it has to be looked at in entirety. I spoke with... Um, the person from uh, Minneapolis that I deal with over the last few years, and he's he's frightened because he's saying, "Ike, you know this this could lead to a great number of things happening within our city. That businesses will close, business will move, people will move out of the city because of the fear that they, the people that they would bring in to try and uh, uh, maintain order, will be probably worse than the police." So it's, it's got to be a process that's going to be thought out in its entirety if, in fact, they do this. Hmm. Um, I, I also want to, of course, talk uh, about your experiences here uh, and, and the long sort of journey that you had in the department here. But, but I also, before we do that, want to get your, your reaction to the level of frustration that we're seeing with police nationwide right now and and how long it's been that people have tried to get their 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 issues with the police heard uh, tried to get departments to reform and still feel like there has been no progress or just very very little um, what, what's your assessment of that that relationship the breakdown of that relationship? over time between people and the, poli- the police who we hire to keep our community safe. Yeah. Well, for years and years and years, I'm talking about for 100 years and, and more, uh, certain segments of the community did not feel that the police were representing them. 
And if we can go back into the 1800s when they were used uh, to catch people for <laughs> who runaway slaves, and mm-hmm. then into the 20s and and on and on, they would not the minority communities were not being represented. And regardless of who that might be, whether it was the Greeks or the Italians or the Irish, they didn't feel as if they were being totally represented by the police. And so with the African-American community, it got even worse because they were um, kept out of the the law enforcement uh, arena. And there were people who were continually being abused and beaten and yet killed, but not, and there was no recourse for them. And I remember um, as a little boy in the 50s, uh, seeing things that I could not believe that were happening by the police to young people or and older people of, of color. And I remember specifically not seeing any law enforcement officers who looked like me as a, as a young boy. And I, I would ask these questions to people, and they would say, that's the way that it is. I, I, I'd seen people beaten up until I was 14 years old when I was abused, beaten up uh, severely by for police officers as I left school. And that triggered me to be want to become a Detroit police officer. Mm. The reason being that I wanted to, to uh, join and make changes and make sure those kinds of things didn't happen. I talked to a number of other minority officers and white officers who said the same thing happened to them uh, because they were poor. And so you know, when you had a system of officers who were uh, doing this and abusing people historically, uh, it became something that people said enough is enough. And of course, we had uh, 67, uh, that the rebellion, and people were just fed up with what was happening and the lack of trust in uh, uh, what was happening in, in their community. So just a historical uh, fact or value that it's occurred within uh, the Detroit Police Department and other police departments around the country. I remember in the late 50s, I was watching a, a, a news station, and there was this man, African-American, who was uh, pulled out of a river in Florida. He had uh, a cinder blocks tied around his legs. He had wire tied uh, around his arms, and he was shot in the head. Hmm. And they, I remember it was a national TV. This, they asked the sheriff, what did he think of this? And he said, this is the worst case of suicide I've ever seen. Now, Think about that as a people seeing that and saying, my God, I mean, there is no justice. And we can go on and on and on. And all these things that continue to occur, occur and people, wait a minute, are we, are we being represented? And certainly as a law enforcement officer, when I joined, I mean, the things that I saw uh, and I had to stop, it, it made me more, even more uh, in tune with what I had to do to try and make a difference within the city. Uh, This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you have joined us, uh, as always. Uh, We're talking with Ike McKinnon, retired deputy mayor of Detroit and former Detroit police chief, has been working with folks in Minneapolis as a consultant to help improve the police department there, where the city council has recently voted to defund and dismantle Uh, that police department. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what your reaction is to growing calls to defund or dismantle police departments in the wake of murders of more people of color across the country. Do you think that's a good solution? 
How do you think that solution would work? What would it look like? Uh, and if not, what do you think is a better way to reform the way we police our communities, the way we keep ourselves safe? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. We especially want to hear from folks who have been out in the demonstrations over the last many days here in Detroit. Uh, uh, what's going through your minds about the reforms that we need, the changes that we would like to see, not just with police, but with the broader system of inequality and systemic racism here in this country? What are the things that uh, you're thinking of uh, that would make things better or that you think would make things better? Uh, again, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Um, I, uh, I, I want to talk a little about your tenure as police chief here in, uh, in the city of Detroit and how you managed these issues, which, of course, Detroit had uh, at, at that time as well. Um, one man can't make all of the change that needs to happen, uh, but talk about the ways in which you had to approach this issue as the leader of that department. You're right, Stephen. One person can't uh, can't change everything, but the realization is that I came into a department uh, that uh, the community really did not trust for a number of reasons. And so what I tried to do was surround myself with uh, number one at the top, because we realized that it, everything to me starts at the top in terms of who the head of that department is and what he or she says that has to be done. So I surrounded myself with some very capable and competent people, number one. And number two, all those people were extremely well-educated, and I believe that they had a similar view as myself in terms of these are things that we have to do to turn this department around. And so... I remember having a meeting with all of my executives, and this was probably 70 members uh, of the executive team, and saying to them, look, I, I've grown up in this department. I know that there are certain things that have to be changed, not only by me, but by you, and I need your help with this. So we've got to go out into the community and truly make a difference to let the people know that we care about them, we think about them, and we want to make uh, life better and safe for them. And so the first part of it was getting the executive team to literally be uh, a part of the street team to go out to meet with them. Secondly, uh, to meet with the officers and tell them there are things that we will or will not accept from you. And because there's a law enforcement code of ethics, that's the first paragraph says, as a law enforcement officer, my fundamental duty is to serve the community. To safeguard lives and property, protect the innocent against deception, the weak against oppression or intimidation, and respect the constitutional rights of all to liberty, equality, and justice. And that was key to me because I, I think that I know that every officer learns the law enforcement code of ethics or conduct as he or she is in the academy, and they, they should maintain that for their entire career. We're not there to uh, chastise people. We're not there to beat people. We're there to make sure the community is safe. So that was the first part of it for me, and uh, getting the executive team, getting them to be uh, uh, people who would go out into the community and getting the trust uh, of the community. 
And then I started going out into the community myself to let people know that there are things uh, that this department that I would be running would be totally different than what they had seen in the past. And I, I can truly say that I don't think there was any chief that had done that before. It's very much like what um, Chief Greg is, Craig is doing right now in terms of uh, of getting the, the, the community to, to, to like, love uh, the, uh, the law enforcement officers, even though they had been a series of problems before. Because if we don't have trust of the law enforcement agencies, we get to this point of where we're at right now with some departments, uh, the possibility of, of them wanting to shut them down. Hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Ike McKinnon. We are going to get to your calls. Paul in Detroit, Anthony in Brighton, Chelsea in Ferndale, Tanya in Southfield. You'll be up next as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Your city. Your town. Your voice. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Ike McKinnon, former deputy mayor and police chief here in the city of Detroit. Uh, We're talking about the demonstrations that we're seeing across the country and the questions that are coming up now about the future of policing in this country. The Minneapolis City Council has voted to defund and disband the police there, uh, something that we will see over the next month, what that really means, how they plan to maintain public safety in that community without the police department that they have right now. Uh, But there are lots of cities that are thinking about change and the ways in which we might alter policing in this city, uh, in this city and others. Uh, We want to hear from you as well. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Call and tell us what you think of these calls to defund or dismantle police departments. Call and tell us what you think would come next in your mind. What else could we do? Uh, Also, give us a call and tell us if you have been part of the demonstrations every night here in Detroit and now in communities all around Detroit uh, to protest police brutality and systemic racism. Tell us what you are feeling and thinking about as you're participating in those demonstrations and tell us what you think needs to change. As always, again, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Five seven seven one zero one nine. Let's go to Anthony in Brighton. Anthony, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. I, my personal feelings is residency is key. Um, police departments normally reflect their community. Detroit has a majority black population, but the police department has pretty much not like it used to be. Hmm. Um, and it, and unfortunately, it happened under Ike McKinnon's tenure that residency was removed to be a requirement of the police department. You know? That's true. <laughs> that actually happened at a different time, Anthony, yeah. but but it it was in it was in the nineties though uh, I yeah. believe that it that it that it did happen 
Um, so, so Anthony, your your solution is is in, at least in part that uh, residency should should be one of the requirements. Yes, and yeah. police departments should do more to recruit from the community. Yeah. Anthony, I, I can't disagree at all, uh, and I appreciate the call and, and the comment. Um, uh, Ike McKinnon, talk about residency and the way it plays a role in the way that police departments relate to their communities. Uh, we should also make it clear that, that the residency requirement was not removed uh, by Detroiters. Uh, there was a Supreme Court. Uh, there was a Supreme Court case here in the state that determined that you could not compel police officers and firefighters to live uh, in the city where where they where they work. But I talk about how you had to deal, how you dealt with that issue when you were uh, when you were chief. Yeah, I'm glad you you clarified that because it was not under me. But anyway. Uh, the residency has always been a point of contention because people, they they did not want to live in, in our city. And so they moved. And, and some officers at the time were living outside the city with their families, but they had apartments with other officers inside the city. And, and Anthony's right in terms of the police department being reflective of the community. That's, uh, that's most important. That has not been the case for a great number of years. And what what... I and others have tried to do is to recruit from within the city or would go outside the city to try and recruit uh, minorities. It has been a uh, very difficult process because, number one, uh, the pay, number two, because of the the job itself. And uh, we have a great number of minorities who move on to other jobs where the pay is better. They live in other locations. And at the time, uh, uh, it was very difficult to get professional, which I try to do, uh, 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 people to join the police department. It's been, it's been a very difficult process for recruiting, uh, and we can see that right now with uh, the recruiting across the country. Other departments would come to Detroit and recruit uh, minorities from our department to go to their department, for instance. So much in Texas, we had the same thing in um, uh, Las Vegas. And these were chiefs that I would talk to and say, look, let me keep, don't come and take my guys. Well, they were paying them probably twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 more than what we could pay them. And I think at that time, we, when I was chief, I think they were starting off at 25000 And in suburban communities, they're probably making sixty, And certainly in other locations, they were making over $100,000. So we could not uh, contend with them. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, w- one of the things that I think is also difficult with regard to recruitment of good officers, of officers who reflect the population, uh, is the money that we have to do that. As much money as we spend on policing, it is a really uh, low-paying job for for people uh, to, to do. And the ask is quite high. I mean, the idea of going out and, and you know, in some ways risking your life each day uh, to, to keep a community safe, I mean, it's not a great bargain for a lot of for a lot of people. That is true, and you have to have this. I don't want to say a calling, but a desire to truly help a or your community. And to say that uh, if you can work in Detroit and make forty thousand dollars a year, or fifty, and you can go to another community and make sixty or seventy thousand, well, you know, if you have a family, that's going to be more important. And that, that becomes part of what we're dealing with, uh, not only in Detroit, but other other municipalities or uh, cities that has a, a large minority population. Mm. 
Again, Anthony, thanks very much for the call uh, and the comments. Let's go to Paul in Detroit. Paul, welcome to the show. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Hi, how are uh, you? My, my uh, question is, in the, the improper treatment you have, how come it's impossible to get a policeman's record prior to your hiring him, his previous work history? I can never figure that out. Mm. Uh, as, as a job, as, a, as insensitive, as important as that, shouldn't you have an opportunity to view his work history? Mm. If these officers are getting uh, complaint after complaint, you don't want them in your, your – it costs the city money. So why not have the ability to screen these people? And I know the police unions have a big part to play in that, but uh, it doesn't make sense because, you know, even in my job, I, I'm an IT person. They, they look at my record, and I'm not nearly as in a, as a, in a as sensitive position as a police officer. Mm. So I think that would would at least uh, help this problem somewhere. And this officer that killed uh, George Floyd, 18 complaints, yeah, and he was still yeah. on the street. Yeah. yeah. Well, in most instances, we're able to get the records except for when it comes from another police agency. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that we recommend, that if a person, it's called police hopping. You know, you go from one department to another. When you get a number of complaints, you go to another department, and they seal those records. That's important to for for your department. For instance, I had an officer who had committed a, a crime, uh, but had been the, the crime had been expunged some time before, and joined uh, the Detroit Police Department. I found out about this, uh, and we removed the officer some time later. Now, of course, the unions uh, grieved that, but they lost. They lost because this person had lied about ever being convicted of a crime before. It's most difficult to get uh, past records when you're dealing with another police department. But when you're dealing with another out an outside agency, as you just said, uh, that it's 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 easier for us to do that. The police departments and unions say, we don't want that. Now, we don't want to stop people from getting a job. But the facts are that if a person has committed some crime or some egregious act, we don't want that person uh, to be part of our department. And I think when you're talking about this guy, Chauvin, with Minneapolis. I think all 18 of those complaints against him were with in Minneapolis itself, mm -hmm. no other department. Yeah. Well, and that does bring up the idea of, Police unions, which are are very powerful in in most cities, and are good at protecting their members, even when those members are misbehaving. I I would imagine that that has a lot to do with uh, how Chauvin, for instance, kept his job, and of course here in Detroit, uh, there's been lots of reporting about the the extent to which officers who misbehave are not are not dismissed. Is it time to rethink police unions at a minimum? Well, let's, let's start, number one, with the first most egregious part of this is the supervision. The supervisors, they have the say and the ability to take an action against someone. And But the supervisors are were once police officers, and then they are promoted into another rank. Let's say the sergeant, that's the first-line supervisor. If they don't do something, then those people stay. Now, uh, what unions do is they they grieve practically every uh, uh, area that they can, and it just keeps something in the pipeline forever and forever. A person uh, can be uh, 
continue to be a police officer while they are being grieved. See, and what I think unions have to do, and I understand they have to protect their people. Look, I was part of the union when I was a police officer and a sergeant lieutenant. But the realization is, I think unions have to say, wait a minute, enough is enough with some guys. And I've had uh, members of, of the union say to me, uh, chief or boss, you know, this guy's a bad actor, you know, and I know you got to fire him, but I've got to grieve him, you know. But I think unions have to say, look, uh, this guy's caused too many problems, not only for uh, us as a union, but for the city itself. Mm. And, 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 and maybe that becomes the issue dealing with uh, those kinds of problems that we've had. Mm. Uh, again, Paul, thanks very much for the call and, uh, and, and the insight. Let's go to Chelsea in Ferndale. Chelsea, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Hi. Um, so I have been at protests in Toledo and Detroit for multiple days over the course of the last week, especially mm-hmm. in the beginning when tensions were much higher. And I really just want to invite people to consider what it is to be up against military equipment in the streets. Mm. Um, I think demilitarization of police is something that we really have to talk about very seriously, um, especially to see military-grade equipment like tear gas, rubber bullets, pepper balls, um, those wooden rounds that can be fired out of a rifle, just used very cavalierly with crowds that are mostly 17 to 25-year-olds with posters. Um, You know, I think that I think we need to really talk about what that is. And to really, I just, I've been thinking about this a lot. And just Mm -hmm. to be in the streets as an unarmed civilian facing that line of riot police, Mm. fully equipped head to toe with bear cats out, um, you know, we talk about um, non-lethal means are really less lethal means. Um, and I think more people need to really understand that, that what a rubber bullet is and sure. what it can do to a human being yeah. if you get hit with it in the street. Absolutely. Uh, Chelsea, I'm really glad you called and, and shared that experience with us. You know, uh, Ike McKinnon, we have allowed police departments to, to arm themselves uh, in ways that I, I'm not sure... 50 years ago, people imagined that the police needed to be armed. Um, but but I think also in Chelsea's call and comments, we have this, this again, this strained relationship between people and the police. In other words, this idea of the police as uh, local enforcers of law, independent from the communities that they serve, almost like a military force or some sort of occupying force is one of the dynamics that I think we've got to, we've got to really examine and, and somehow reverse the, the, this, this idea of the police being against the people who they are supposed to be protecting is to me just a big part of the problem. I absolutely agree. And I agree with Chelsea. We became more militarized after 1967, because uh, the thoughts were uh, that police should have weaponry to deal with protesters. Well, what does that mean? I mean, look, we don't need AK-47s. We don't need those kinds of weapons. We don't need tanks uh, for uh, and that, that kind of uh, armament to handle uh, what we see as crowds uh, that's protesting in the city. And I think that it's it's been handled in most instances well in, in Detroit and, and after the first time a few nights around the country in terms of not doing that. But I, I, I agree. I mean, I really agree that we shouldn't be uh, using those kinds of things. Uh, there, there will be times that you might use 
some kind of armament to go into a barricaded government or something like that, but not for a, a, a group of people protesting uh, against uh, these systemic actions that we see. Uh, it has to be looked at in terms of, this, as I said before, we are there to serve and protect, you know, not to beat and kill. Mm. And this goes back again to the people, the kind of people we recruit, number one. Number two, the supervision within a police department. We've seen around the country, not only the officers, but also the supervisors uh, just whacking the heck out of somebody because they, and I don't don't use the term frustrated, but if you're a professional person, you don't do those kinds of things against um, uh, uh, American citizens. That's, that's against everything that we stand for. But uh, well, let me say this. In my years since 1965, the things that I've seen are unimaginable. The things that I've had to stop as a minority person on the police department uh, almost got me killed, uh, but it stopped other people from, from losing their lives. But I think that it takes that kind of an attitude and the mindset to put your life on the line Mm. to stop things like that. There was a a, a situation that was occurring in Washington State last week that I saw that I thought I I, I never thought I would see again. There were two officers who took a man down to the street and they were handcuffing him. And one officer put his knee on the man's neck Mm. and the other officers said, get your blanking knee off this man. Don't you think, no, that's wrong? Right. And you could hear this on TV. And I said, my God, you know, he got it. He got it. And this is what most officers have to They have to understand that they are there to serve and protect, not be the execution of people uh, for whatever they are doing. Yeah. Okay, uh, I'm going to quickly go to Tanya in Southfield, who's got a really great uh, point as well. Tanya. Welcome to the show. Hi, hey, how are you? I'm good. Good. I have a question. Have you ever thought about um, investigating the deputies at the Wayne County Jail, or have you ever thought about the um, deaths in the jails, not only Wayne County, but Macomb as well? I noticed um, some years ago they were talking about the death rates in the jails, and being a former employee as well as an employee of um, Wayne County for 20 years, that the number of deaths in the jail may be due to the um, deputies. Mm. I am a 15-year employee of Wayne County Third Circuit Court. I am also a former student of Benny Napoleon, and when the sheriff became sheriff, I went over to work for him at the jail. I started getting text messages that I'm a target. I have been targeted for 10 years, since Mm. even after uh, Facano, was asked or told to leave and left Wayne County, I have been tortured by federal government. Mm. I have went to Michigan State Police, Southfield Police. I wrote the federal government. I went to Chief Judge Kenny. I went to several agencies asking for help because I was being tortured. Mm. Have you ever thought about the deputies in the jail or maybe others may be investigated as well for some reason because... Tanya, I I, I don't mean to to, to cut you off, but we're going to run short on on time for this segment. But and, and I want to give like McKinnon a chance to re- to respond. I think uh, you know Tanya brings up a really important uh, issue about the larger criminal justice issues yeah. that we face yeah. here yeah. Uh, in Detroit and 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 all, all across the country. It's not just the police department. 
It is also the jail and the deputies who police the jail and things like that. There's no question there's been a series of incidents that have occurred uh, within jails. Uh, I think that there's an investigation that's that's being done by the Wayne County Sheriff's, being done by the Macomb County and Oakland County Sheriff's, and I think that's around the country, that they're looking at what uh, Tanya just said in terms of what's occurring within their respective jails. I don't know that much about the jails themselves, but I think that um, uh, this is an outside agency that I have no contact with. I know Benny was my uh, executive deputy chief Mm -hmm. uh, when I was police chief. So I think that, um, and I don't know what the relationship, what's happening between uh, Tanya and uh, the sheriff's office, but I think that that has to be talked about with them without me casting any shadows upon what they have done. I know that if it were me, I would do a thorough investigation into an agency to find out if, in fact, those kinds of things are occurring yeah. within me and if somebody's being targeted. Yeah. Okay, Ike McKinnon, retired deputy mayor and former Detroit police chief. It is always great to talk with you, but especially right now, I love that we have your perspective uh, on all of these issues. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll look at the intersection of social justice and economic inequality with Crane's Detroit business reporter, Dustin Walsh. Stay with us on Detroit Today.